This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Mike Rigby about his international career in design and branding and how to stay creatively engaged. Every event you go to, every person you meet, you know, everything you do is fuel for your next idea, you know? Here's Debbie Millman. Mike Rigby once said that in this world, there are optimists, pessimists, and there are designers. Optimists see the glass as half full. Pessimists see it as half empty. And designers see a uniquely shaped glass. According to Rigby, you can apply that way of thinking, that lens, to any problem anywhere in the world. And throughout his career, he has done just that, winning over 50 international design awards for clients such as the Tate Gallery, Alzheimer's Australia, and the National Portrait Gallery. His work strives for simplicity first. Communication, not decoration. Design with a social conscience. Mike Rigby, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Mike, I understand that you got your first job when you were 14, and you were the partner to a singing door-to-door milkman. How the hell do you know that? (laughs) That's incredible. I knew you were a private detective. Yeah, that's right. That was my first job as a 14-year-old. I've never heard of a singing milkman before. Yeah, this guy was a bit of a legend in the town that I grew up. His name was Kev. He had a great voice. He used to, like, at weekends, he would be an entertainer in the pubs and the local pubs and things. And he used to be able to do a really great Elvis impression. Ah. And so he used to be known in the neighborhood as a singing milkman. And I was his, basically, I was his sidekick. So I would get up at 4 a.m. before school and we would kind of drive this milk float around uh, delivering milk. And did did you sing as well? Yeah, I did. I sung as well. What was your favorite song? It was kind of like bang, probably banging out Suspicious Minds, I reckon. That was a classic. Um, <laughs> you know, racing down the highway on this electric vehicle uh, while the world was still asleep. You Did know? you have to try out for the job? Um, no, I didn't actually. He just knocked on the door and said, hey, you want to help me out? I need a, an assistant. And so I was like, okay, why not, you know? And um, yeah, that was my first job. I started early. And looking back, it was crazy. I used to get up at 4 a.m. What was I doing? I was Delivering like, milk. Yeah. And then it, we'd go in the evenings. We'd go and collect the money after school as well. Um, but it was good. It was good fun. I really enjoyed it, actually. Still one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. I did it for about two, three years. Do you think that influenced your adult interest in branding? I think, you know, it did teach me some, like, personal skills, you know, because after school, it was really, it's really nice to feel connected to the community. I think that's what I took out of it. You know, you'd meet people. A lot of the people actually were a lot were elderly. And it was just really cool to be able to, you know, to be connected to, to local people in that way. And, you know, it, it, everyone was just a joke because we were the singing milkman, quite literally, you know. You grew up in the UK. Tell us a bit about your childhood. Yeah, I think it was a happy childhood, um, you know, generally speaking. Um, I was always really quiet as a child, you know, quite shy. I actually have quite a big family. I've got four sisters and a brother, and I'm the youngest by five. I've actually got different dads. Um, so in many ways, I kind of, whilst I had a, a lot of a large family, I was kind of an only child, really. So I, I grew up with my sister's kids. So when I was born, I was an uncle. And uh, and then I was a great uncle when I was really young, like 13 or 14 or something. And so all my nieces, you know, were older than me. It was kind of weird. But um, it was good. You know, I think we had, um, you know, we had, like I said, like a happy childhood. There was always kind of music on in the home. My mum was really good um, with people. She was really good. She cared for the elderly. That was her job. Um, and she was also a really good writer. 
she won like a national poetry competition when she was really young. I think it was um, like a teenage competition. I think she was about 12 or 13. I can't remember what the brief was. It was something like, uh, write a story about a place or time. And she wrote this beautiful poem about the sea and she won. And wow. um, yeah, it's incredible. And she, um, it was quite sad actually, because the prize was a trip to London which was a big deal back then from where I was from. And they were throwing this party and celebration and she would get an award. And because she was young, I think she was like 12, um, she couldn't go on her own, obviously. And so her parents couldn't take her. So a neighbor or a friend of the family took her. And this woman had a boyfriend who was in the army and decided to take a detour to see her boyfriend on the way. And they missed the whole thing. No. Yes. So my poor moment won this competition and like never got anything. Never got anything for it the show for it. It was, it was just unbelievable. Really. That in and of itself is an award-winning poem. <laughs> but I think that was something that always stuck with me. You know, because my mom wanted to do th two things. She wanted to be a nurse because she just has a, an innate ability to care for people or a writer. And she never got to do either of those things really because she was pregnant very young, 16. Um, and she, by the time she was 21, she had three kids. So, um, you know, she was a full-time mom and of course she doesn't regret that and she's a great mother. Um, but that kind of unfulfilled part of her life always kind of stuck with me so I always wanted to if I ever had an opportunity I wanted to take it in a, her honour really you know and any ability that I had I wanted to maximise to help as many people as I could Well let's talk a lot about that You went to the University of Central Lancashire is yes. that how you pronounce it? At Preston Yes um, Did you always know at that point that from there on in you wanted to be a designer? I did from that moment on but up until that point, not at all. I, I, I had no idea I wanted to be a designer. I just fell into it, really. I didn't I have a grand plan. Like, I know a lot of designers, like, I was I was setting tight when I was, you know, two years old or whatever. That wasn't me, I, not at all. But um, I studied illustration and visual communication at college. And then when I got to university, that's when it got really interesting. Um, um, lecturers, that are, one in particular, Andy Bainbridge, who's the course leader, and he was like, inspiration to me. Um, he had a real social conscience. And it was really at that point I realized, wow, God, design, you can do so many things with design. I had no idea. I had no idea there were ideas in design. I had no idea that it was a tool to help people. I had no idea it could be political, you know? Uh, you could do all these incredible things. And it was like a light went off. And I was kind of like, wow, this is really interesting. Now this is what I want to do and dedicate my life to from that moment on, yeah. I read that the University of Central Lancashire was once called the Institution for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, which I consider to be the best name of almost any school I've ever heard of. <laughs> That's amazing. I've never heard that. Oh, you didn't? I was going to ask you, That's what good. do you know about it and yeah. why was it changed? <laughs> well, I think what's interesting about Preston was they pioneered the first ever what's called sandwich course, which is basically a four-year degree in which you spend the year between two and four in industry. So you would take a year out, um, go and work in a placement or whatever and then come back and finish your final year it was the first course to ever do that and that was um revelationary because you'd come back with all this learned knowledge and all these contacts and it would just make your student work all the better and was that when you interned at imagination yes that was my year out yeah and when you graduated, your first job was at an agency in London called The Chase. And mm. that was a pretty prestigious job to get right out of school. They're the most, mm. one of the most creatively awarded design consultancies in Europe. How did yeah. you how did you get that job? Actually, Ben Casey, who's the founder, was the professor of my university. And The Chase and the Preston design philosophy are the same. 
And so that was what was so great about studying at Preston. It's almost this kind of like obsessive attention to the idea. Communication, not decoration, simplicity first. Um, the Chase had this wonderful philosophy, um, which we still got to this day, and it's, it's a little limerick, and it's, it's basically the tale of an old Indian craftsman. Oh, let's hear it. Um, so it's basically this, there's this Indian craftsman that makes these beautiful sculptures of elephants out of kind of, of wood, blocks of wood. And, you know, when anyone asks, how do you do it? He says, I simply cut away the wood that doesn't look like an elephant. And um, it's self-explanatory, but the idea of complete reduction, every element on the page or the screen has to earn its place. Um, and that just that was a beautiful philosophy. I think the other thing, defining characteristic of the chase was it's such a humble place. And just to finish that example, I remember asking Ben, Ben, where did you get that Indian craftsman story from? And he's like, oh, yeah, I heard it on uh, Rambo 2 once. <laughs> It kind of sums it up. It's Sylvester so, Stallone. It's just so kind of. I'm sure the original came from elsewhere. Some you never one, know. You know, I should Google it, but some amazing philosopher somewhere. But he got it from Rambo too. And I think that just sums up how humble, down to earth they were. There was no pretension with the Chase, and they were actually based in Manchester and London. And part of the vision for the Chase was to offer the first real serious design practice that could be outside of London too. That's really what Ben and Lionel wanted to do together. And they achieved everything in their lives. And they were so humble. You know, that's what I Where do you think that humility came from? Because you said that that was the most important lesson you learned at Chase. It's partly the northern psyche. You know, the the saying is the further north you go, the friendlier people get. And I think there's a just down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth kind of quality in general to northerners. So I think the Chase in many ways was supposed to be a celebration of that. And, and I think it's just in the, you know, I think they just attracted that type of person. There was just no airs and graces. There was no flashy PowerPoints. It was just great ideas, normal people, you know, that were passionate about what they did and really bloody good. While researching the myriad projects you designed at Chase, I came across your chicken egg mailer, which yeah. I adored. So I want you to describe that for our listeners. It's very rare that I actually ask a designer to describe something mm. because it's radio. We're listening and I don't yeah. want them to feel like they're excluded from whatever it is we're talking about because they haven't seen it. This is one of the few times where I want our listeners to hear this idea. Okay. The brief was, hey, guys, we want to send out a mailer to our clients for Easter. So best idea wins. And that happened quite a lot at the Chase. And so my idea was um, maybe we could just keep this really simple but be a bit experimental. So what we did was we designed a card, and the card on the front um, said chicken in beautiful foil type. And then we designed uh, a box that had an Easter egg in it that said egg. And then what we did was we'd courier them out at different times. So a client might receive a card first that said chicken. And like, what the hell is this? And then they get an egg, you know, an hour later or two hours later. So answering the age old question of which came first, the chicken or the egg. So it's kind of a stupid idea, but it was, you know. I love it. I love it. It's It's like a little art project. It's quirky and funny and smart and cheeky. Yeah. But in many ways, that just summarized the chase. That's what it's all about. Like really great ideas, you know, um, and just being experimental and creative. You left Chase after four years to travel through Vietnam and Australia. Mm. What what made you decide to do that? And what made you decide to choose those specific sort of disparate locations? Yeah, it's a good question. I think after four years, I was a little bit frustrated, to be honest, that my work wasn't necessarily as effective as I'd hoped it would be. It was not a reflection on the Chase. It was just um, how it worked out. And it was at around about the time when the design thinking movement was really taking off. You know, Tim Brown had just done his seminal first design thinking TED Talk. Tim Brown from IDEO. Yes. Um, Bruce Mao as well was really great inspiration for me. And it, it was kind of that time I was like, right, okay, if I want to really impact the world, maybe I need to see the world. 
Andy Bainbridge, again, had always talked about his travels around Australia. So I think that's probably why I chose Australia. And then Southeast Asia was amazing. You know, traveling through, uh, it was so good because the people are so nice. But yeah. You just mentioned Bruce Mao, and you've stated that he is your hero. Mm. And you've referenced um, a quote of his. You've said that he's um, the only designer who successfully predicted the future of design Mm. would be less about the world of design and more about the design of the world. Mm. Um, do you feel similarly? I do. I think that that was brilliant. It's such a simple turn of phrase. That's why I kind of love about Bruce. He kind of like, you know, boils big, complicated ideas down to something so simple like that. Um, and he was really right. I, I think he and Tim were, you know, predicting a future where design would get big again. And, you know, that our skills were actually transferable. The same methodology and method and thinking you could apply to um, graphic problems, perhaps you could apply to other problems too. Um, environment, com- culture, all that kind of stuff. And so... You know, I think he wasn't being dismissive about the world of design, but I think what he was saying was, why don't we open up a little bit as an industry? You know, perhaps instead of being a little bit inward looking and designing for awards and perhaps for ourselves and other designers, um, you know, why don't we actually apply our incredible talent for solving problems to other things? Do you think that graphic designers have an obligation to create design to inspire social change? I'd like to think I do. I mean, I wouldn't um, say everybody should do that, but that's certainly how I how I roll and how I encourage my team to think as well. I think particularly when it comes to branding, I know this is your area of expertise as well, Debbie. I think what initially attracted me to branding in the first place was that it gives you like a a real access and influence at a higher level. So to businesses, you know, it opens the door to the boardroom. You know, you have the ear, the CMO, sometimes it's the CEO. And I think with that comes like a real opportunity. And I think a responsibility actually, you know, to help businesses not just make more money and increase the bottom line, but help them to become better employers or, you know, better citizens of the world, contribute more meaningfully to culture, to environment, etc. That's some of that's one of the most exciting things about the job for me. Um, you know, I would say like a brand's a lot like a person. And to me, branding's about finding the very best in that person. That's what the job satisfaction lies. Giving clients the inclination to do better and be better and giving them an understanding of themselves they've never felt before. I couldn't imagine anything more important or profound than that. There is another lens to it, which is obviously the design for good thing as well. Um, you know, which is, I, I just love that. You know, I think um, design at its best is when it's generous, you know, when it goes beyond just the normal constraints of design um, to really help people. So that's definitely what drives me in my career for sure. One of the things that I find so exciting about branding right now is how democratized it's become in the way that non-designers and non-consumers are using the very tenets of branding to create movements mm. and to communicate ideas. Totally. Black Lives Matter, the pink pussy hat, yeah, yeah. all of these things are are using the very tenets of branding that are are classic in nature but have allowed, I think, humanity to connect and communicate in ways that we've never seen before. I find that incredibly, incredibly exciting. That's really interesting, yeah. I was just thinking on the way here, actually, um, Trump, I think, has brought out the worst, but also the best in some people. I feel like everybody in RGA is working on a side project that's political, designed to help somebody. Yeah, I I don't know anybody that isn't bringing some type of thread of politicalness to their practice, their conversations, their meals, their bedrooms, whatever. Mm. Well, um, a guy in my team, Gus Cook, and another young designer called Zach, they've just launched, you might have seen it, um, their own card game called Alternative Facts. And it was on, um, <laughs> no, I it was, haven't, like, they, they, they just came up with the idea and they thought, 
um, you know, should we do it as a meme? And then they were like, why don't we just make it? So they made it over the weekend. And then they've got, I think they've got like Mattel are interested in actually making these things. Oh it was on gosh, Fast Company. Fantastic. There's another um, girl called Shannon Ross, who's a really talented art director. And she's building a website at the minute that makes it really easy to uh, report hate crimes. And not only report them, but it automatically generates an analog letter, which gets sent to the local MP. Um, you know, because, you know, most hate crimes go unreported. It's outrageous. Mm. Your next two jobs, when after you settled in Sydney, mm. you had a job for about a year at Landor, mm. uh, one of the classic places yeah. to really mm. learn branding. Mm. Um, and then you went to Pentagram. So mm. sort of 180 degrees, the best <laughs> in branding and the best in design in a matter of two years. Yeah. Talk about the differences or the similarities. And yeah. then also tell us what it was like to work for Angus, Angus Highland, who's just a yeah. dreamboat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Landor was great for me. It was um, my first taste of a proper branding agency. So, um, you know, it was big, it had resources. And uh, I wanted to f actually freelance because I was traveling. I didn't want to kind of commit to any one role in particular. So I was freelancing, like permalancing really at Landor and the same with Pentagram. Again, I got really into the strategy uh, side of things um, at Landor. I, I think what I love about it, I would encourage all young designers listening to this to really indoctrinate yourself in strategy. Because to me, it's a great filter for ideas. So out of this range of 20 ideas I have, the strategy tells me these are the most relevant, most useful, most valuable ideas. And it helps you focus and it's a mechanism for making better design decisions. So that, I think that was for me was really getting into brand strategy and thinking about design at a different level. So talk yeah. a little bit about what you mean by strategy. How do you use strategy to create better work? Yeah, I think at Landor, so it was more about kind of, okay, so what does the brand really stand for? You know, at the chase, we used to do that as well, but not to the same degree. And it was more kind of a creative uh, expression. Here we'd get really deep. We'd use research. Um, you know, we'd do interviews because we're working with big businesses. And you get a really great, strong sense of what the culture of the business was about. And it's back to that, you know, if a brand's a person, it's about finding the best in that person. That's what I loved about it. That was the, my first taste of it. It was like, wow, there's something really cool about this brand that the world doesn't know. And even people that work there don't know. So let's bring that to the surface. It's almost like a little bit of a brand archaeology. You know, what's the backstory? Um, what's our ambitions? Um, you know, what do consumers really need? What do people need? Where's the world going? And through the intersection of those things, you can actually find something really powerful um, that you can then design around. And yeah, to, so Pentagram is an honor to work there. It's kind of like to, you know, to tread the hallowed halls of Pentagram. It was amazing. Pentagram London as well. They've got their own street. It's yeah. amazing. Pentagram Yard. <laughs> so talk about working for Angus. What's the biggest thing you learned from Angus Highland? He's the master of illustration, isn't he? I mean, like, he's got such an amazing eye. He's tough. I, I think that's one of the things I, t I took from him. He doesn't take any messing around and with clients. Really? Know, like so he tells them I heard, what I he heard thinks. him just overhearing him on the phone and how he kind of managed was really insightful. And he had a really young team around him, and they were so talented. Um, I think that was it was great to be a part of that. We were doing a couple of big branding projects um, and he seemed to appreciate like my kind of like chase thinking and writing and things like that. Um, yeah, it was good. Um, I enjoyed it. Given your inclination to prefer to work on brands that are doing socially good work or stand for something meaningful, mm. have you had to turn down a lot of projects in your career? Um, I, I like to think that it's about finding the good in all projects that I work on. Um, I did do a spell when I was at True North where I was working on kind of arts and culture clients almost exclusively for two or three years. And that was right after Pentagram, Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I actually, after a while, I actually just thought, this isn't really 
working for me. I, I, I don't know. I, f- I feel like I think you should always have a conscience to ask your original question. We have turned down some work before, things like tobacco, um, you know, kind of gambling, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I like to think and try and see the positives in most clients that we work with. I think, you know, at the end of the day, the people behind these brands are, are just people. Uh, and I think that I'm optimistic about the human spirit. And I think most people want to do the right thing. Um, they just don't know how often. And it's like clearing the way to allow them to, you know, like I say, be better employers and, you know, be better citizens of the world. I think you can do that with most businesses that you work for. While you were at True North, you worked with the Tate, the National mm. Portrait Gallery, and the People's History Museum, and you didn't like this I work? I did. I loved it. Come on. I did. I loved it. It was so cool. It was awesome. <laughs> but you got tired of it? I did. I, did. I think Why? you can do anything that's, you know, I think one of the great things about being a designer is the variety. You know, it's like it's about working with an arts and culture client and then a bank or, you know, like a startup. And I, I find that variety really interesting because each project is like a, a unique learning experience. That's another great thing about being a designer. And I know you love it, the research part. Yeah. It's like just learning about this world and, you know, the community that surrounds these brands. It's an education. And when you're doing the same thing over and over again, no matter what it is, I just find that um, it just becomes a little bit, you know, not boring, but repetitive. So. You, you stayed at True North for a couple of years and then decided to go back to Australia. Yes. Why? What made you decide to go back? Well, the Landor team that I'd met, um, we're basically headhunted to start Interbrand Australia. Ah, yeah, so, so the, some scandal. Yeah, so they basically kind of stripped all the talent out of Landor and started and put it together into brand. Also, my good friend, Chris McLean, um, who had started in the same team at the Chase as Juniors together, was creative director there. So we're kind of like, okay, so I can work with these amazing people from Landor and I can work with Chris again. Absolutely, let's do this, you know. Uh, and I was a senior designer at the time. So I, I kind of went from senior designer to creative director overnight. I hadn't managed anybody. And then I think a week into the job, I was presenting to some CEO, completely fluffed it. You know, it's kind of like, oh, God, it was a bit of a nightmare. It was quite stressful. But, you know, quite quickly got, got pace with it. And, yeah, it went well in the end. You went from being the a senior designer mm. to executive creative director, which is where I actually first met you. Mm. And I'd like to share some of your accomplishments during your four-year stay there. You received the CEO Award for the Best Office in the Global Network for two years straight. And as somebody who's also had a company within the Omnicom Network, I can tell you that is no small feat. You had also 38 offices worldwide. So pretty, pretty impressive. You were responsible for helping win Interbrand's first ever con design lion. Mm. And you helped grow Interbrand Australia from an initial 10 people to over 70 Mm. in two years. You also established the office as the most creatively awarded in the global Interbrand network. So let's break this down and figure out how on earth you made all of this happen. First, how do you grow a company from 10 people to 70 people in two years? <laughs> well, you put a street sign out and say, all designers <laughs> this way. <laughs> well, in truth, what happened is um, Chris McLean and I, we, we <laughs> pitched Telstra. So Telstra is like AT&T in Australia. Sorry, it's Australia's biggest business. And DDB came downstairs into brands part of DDB, which is a big advertising agency. Say, hey, um, Telstra um, are asking about a brand uh, refresh. They were asking us what the new ad template should look like. 
And so um, myself and Chris and Damien and Rich, Damien Borchok is an amazing guy, yes, one of my I, mentors. Really amazing man. Yeah. And he was like, right, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna we're gonna show him what the brand should be, basically, in typical Damien fashion. And me and Chris were like, it's in seven days. And it's like, we're doing it. So we basically um, went back to Chris's house after work. We're like, what are we going to do? And uh, we came up with an, an idea, which was really great. It was a spectrum idea. It's too complicated to explain, but basically a, a graphic idea, which we then started to design the next day. We designed this whole campaign, this whole brand, uh, and gave them really something to stand for. We showed how it works in motion and interface. And instead of giving them the ad templates they asked for, we showed them a whole new world that was completely 360 from where they were. Um, and we convinced them that they needed to disrupt because their their problem was they weren't connecting with young people at all. They were kind of like seen as expensive. They were former governmental. And, you know, they were just weren't cool, for want of a better word. They're kind of like young people saw them as the mum and dad's brand. So what we were trying to do is really um, connect with people, a much more diverse set of people, especially younger people, with a much more vibrant brand. And we pitched it, and DDB were really nervous about this. They were kind of like, what are you guys doing? This is ridiculous. This isn't what they asked for. And we thought, well, that's why we'll win. You know, we went in, and it was all or nothing, and we won the pitch. Chris and I presented it together, and then that was really, that got us going, because like I say, it's Australia's biggest business, so they're the biggest advertiser in Australia, and so suddenly we were like, oh my God, we're rebranding Telstra, we need people, and we just started adding and adding, and that, that then we became known for the Telstra job, and it just kind of snowballed from there, we had so much great work out there, we were experimenting, we were so young, and we were working our ass off, we were working so hard, everybody uh, was all in. And, you know, cherish that memory. It felt like, you know, I was just to say, you're joining a mission, guys. We're here to decorporatize Australia. And we did it with the biggest business in the country. They were so corporate. And we transformed them completely. You know, we found something that was interesting about that business and completely changed. I think they added 33% to their share price in the first year after launch. And it changed, completely transformed them. How do you manage the culture when you go from 10 people to 70 people in two years? That's a really good question. That was the <laughs> hardest you. thing. That was so hard. It was, and we actually came back down from 70 to around about 50 because it was, at one point, honestly, I didn't even know who the people were. It's kind of like, who's that? Yeah, that's when <laughs> you know there's a problem. You have to know everybody. It just starts to get out of control, to be honest. And so, and we were exhausted. So we actually, I think the business steadied at around about 50, which felt much more manageable. Um, but I think retaining culture was the hardest part. We launched our own website, it's called Stand Apart. We had, you know, real emphasis on our culture because it was our greatest strength in many ways. It was a fight to keep hold of it, though. There are few moments in a design firm or branding consultancies tenure where you have that moment mm. where you're in the zone and that was a moment that yeah. was a moment where you could see you had the whole world yeah how do you sustain that how is or is it possible to sustain you just ride it like a wave mm. i think um it was difficult to sustain because we were working too hard what defined our version of interbrand was stand apart that was, we had this little mantra it was called stand apart it was like it means good isn't good enough it means every project has to be amazing and we just had this culture of excellence that was exhausting to maintain and i think we all started to feel the burn after a while and it just meant just taking it down a notch me being more selective over projects one of the mistakes we made to be honest was taking on too much free work so we did i think we did about five rebrands for charities and for cultural organizations but that's also how you made a worldwide yeah, sort of I know. statement because the wor your work for alzheimer's australia mm. was really what 
put you on the map to a lot of mm. design students and, mm. and young designers that might not have even ever heard of mm. a branding consultancy in Australia called Interbrand. Yeah, I think collectively our proudest moment, I think, at Interbrand was the Alzheimer's Australia rebrand, I suppose, is one way of talking about it. It was more than that, really. No, um, I think you, you refer to it as a movement, or that yeah, was your, your intention, and exactly. that's really what it became. That's true, and I think that the ask, um, similarly to Telstra, when they came and said, give us some new ad templates, Alzheimer's approached and said, hey, we need, need a new logo and an identity, which they did, but <laughs> they needed a bit more than that. And I think credit to, again, Damien, he went back to the client and just gave one of the best speeches I've ever seen. What did he say? Um, he just went in and said, guys, this is a crisis. And we need to start a social movement that needs to start inside your own organization. And what we're talking about here is social change. And to do that, we need to create an extraordinary brand. There was much more to it than that. But there were literally tears in the eyes of the board. They gave him a standing ovation. And we were like, right, now we're off. And me and Chris were like, just felt this enormous sense of responsibility. From the beginning, we are kind of like, we've got to get this right. Um, just to give a little bit of context on Alzheimer's, um, if anybody doesn't know, I guess, some of the characteristics of the disease, by 2030, it will kill more Australians than cancer in Australia. It's already the third biggest killer. And the greatest injustice is that it wasn't recognized as a chronic disease by the Australian government. So what that means is, unlike support for cancer and heart disease and diabetes, if you have a family member that suffers from dementia and Alzheimer's, you don't get any help. Like, there's, there's literally no support, no money. And we couldn't believe it. And, you know... It isn't just about old-timers' diseases. It's dubbed sometimes. It affects people as young as 30. And so we were hearing this stuff, which was, you know, obviously quite troubling. And we were kind of like, right, so there's a real issue here we need to fix. And the greatest value I think we created was getting them united on the inside. And you were able to bring it all together with using two colors and four words. Is <laughs> yeah, that exactly, correct? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was kind of, we had this idea of kind of like light and dark on positive and negative because there was lots of things people needed to know. But we always wanted to be a positive brand. A lot of charity brands actually are quite negative. You know, they either play the guilt card or they show the problem. Like they visualize cancer or they visualize people suffering. That's where Alzheimer's were. And we were like, we don't want to do that. We want to be a positive brand. So the first thing I ever wrote that, that it was inspired by was just three different headlines. And it was um, Alzheimer's disease causes problems with memory. But that doesn't mean we should forget about it. Um, Alzheimer's disease affects speech. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. And Alzheimer's disease is incurable. But that doesn't mean we can't find a cure. And so that idea of light and dark, of sharing something negative with something positive was really it. And then Chris put that into a logo and that was it, the four words. So, so Alzheimer's Australia is the word mark that remains fixed. And then the system is to build a conversation around it. So for instance, fight Alzheimer's, save Australia, understand Alzheimer's, protect Australia. And this verbal brand, if you like, just kept talking to you in different ways, in ways that was relevant to the various stakeholders, you know, people suffering from dementia, government, um, all that kind of thing. And then the, the greatest thing we did was actually the launch of the brand was to organize a protest rally, which we took to the steps of Government House, 500 people, and we marched. And we turned up on the steps and we had a manifesto, we had a plane fly over that said fight dementia. And then, you know, cutting a lot of detail out, but eight months later, the government changed law and actually made it dementia a national health priority, giving $350 million of extra money. Which is incredible, isn't it, really? And I think just shows you what getting people aligned can do. It's crazy, you know, and it's kind of like just amazing. Just so thrilled to be a part of it. And obviously, you know, there's more work to be done, but I triumph for sure. Thank you for doing that important work. It is making a big difference. During your time in Australia, there seemed to be a rather dramatic, improved perception of what was creatively possible from the larger, more established branding studios, mm. due in large part, really, to the work that you were doing there. 
And you mentioned before that you wanted to not join an agency, but a cause, and that you were on a mission to decorporatize Australia. Do you think you succeeded in doing that? Um, yeah, I'd always say I'd love to do, do more. I think we did try our hardest and did our best. I think we had some successes and some um, not so not such great successes. Um, but yeah, I think we did. I think like you know, wanted to do a couple of things when we joined Interbrand. One was to really make the most of the opportunity in terms of scale and impact. Interbrand is one of the world's biggest branding agencies, and. Chris and I kind of met in Buenos Aires and we we're like, what do we want to do with this opportunity? And we thought, well, what if we apply almost like boutique, really great creativity to interbrand strategic rigor? What would happen? Um, so that's what we wanted to do. We always wanted to, also wanted to, if given the opportunity, try and improve the businesses we were working with. You know, use that influence for good. So Telstra, how do you make them better? better employers, better communicators. And all the brands we work with, I feel, went up a level, um, you know, in kind of citizenship, if you like. And then the third thing I wanted to do was try and kind of unite the Australian design industry a little bit. Because when I first got there, I was a little bit disappointed by how, for want of a better word, bitchy it was. There's a lot of sniping going on. And, you know, the Australian Graphic Design Association, or AGDA, it was kind of like public enemy number one. But you, and you rebranded that as well. Yeah, I wanted to get involved. Like, I love I love our industry. And, you know, like, if we can't bloody pull together, then what, what hope do we have? So to me, was, I just could never understand that. So I joined Agda, I became part of the board, I became the chairman of New South Wales, and then eventually, over the course of time, we actually helped to change the reputation, build proper community and bridges. So is it less bitchy? Yeah. I mean, there is like a bit of a, it's called the tall poppy syndrome in Australia. It's kind of part of its charm because everyone's so down to earth. If you get above your station, you'll quite quickly get hacked down. The tall poppy, you know, gets ah, gets, gets okay. lopped. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, they've also got this ideal, which is a fur go. So, like, that's that's such a the Australian psyche. That's why I love working with Australian clients because they'll give it a fur go. We did some insane things. We created an inflatable brand for Darling Harper. We, they, they, they were like, yeah, we'll do that. And we, we made these 30-foot inflatable letters and stuck them on the side of buildings, and they were loving it. You know, Telstra completely transformed their business. Like, just to so brave just to give it a go, you know? And I love that about the Australian psyche. It's cool. And that's why it's great to be a designer. That's why the design scene is flourishing so much. So what made you decide to move to New York? 2014, you left Interbrand, you left Australia. Here yeah. you are. Why? Yeah, good question. Well, uh, <laughs> I always wanted to come to New York. That's the first thing. So it was always part of the long-term plan. I came for RGA. I came for the job. Um, so they just called you up one day and said, hey, Mike, we no, see what you're it was, doing? It was a bit like that. Really? It was actually probably even more. I got, I got on a LinkedIn thing going like, hey, um, Nick Law, our chief creative officer is in Australia. Do you want to meet him for a pint? I was like, yeah, sure. So I went and Nick and I. And you had never met before? No, never and met. Um, we had a couple of pints. That's some blind date, huh? <laughs> it's amazing. Like We had a couple of pints. Nick and, Law. Uh, I know. What a guy. Yeah. Hero. It was just such a great conversation. We just got on, clicked almost immediately. And I don't even remember if I showed him any work. And then at the end of the conversation, he's like, you should work for RGA. And I was like, okay, all right, that sounds good. And then spoke to Bob a few days later. and um, Bob Greenberg. Yeah, yeah, founder, CEO, genius. And um, that was that. The job was there. It was such a great brief. He was kind of like, hey, I want you to... Um, come and help lead our branding and consulting practice, but do it differently, like leverage the great heritage that RGA has, not only in design, but in technology, and give us a different type of consulting practice, um, one that allows us to kind of supersede what else is happening in the industry. That was the ambition. And so that it was just something I could buy into immediately. I think the other reason was what I, 
was really interested in, again, back to my driving mission of being a designer, is how can I multiply my own effectiveness? I saw what RGA was doing. It was really interesting. How are we using creativity and technology together? Well, what a, talk about a company that's reinvented itself. Yeah. Time, I think it's in its fifth reinvention mm. now. Mm. And it just keeps getting bigger and better and yeah. more prestigious. It is amazing. I, it's hard to describe because it does so many things. It's changed so many times. But I would say RGA is a design company. First and foremost. Yes. Yeah. Bob started the company in 1977, and the first business card he designed said, um, moving pictures by design. Mm. And um, he and his brother, so it's Robert R. Greenberg Associates, RGA, he and his brother were pioneering motion graphics. And so this is kind of amazing. It blows my mind. But the technology didn't exist, so they had to make it. Um, so they were making their own machinery to make mo- motion graphics wasn't really a thing. Then he's like, what? When was the first Mac launched? 1984, right? So it's like seven years before the first Mac, and they had to build their own computers to do what they wanted to do. And what Bob wanted to do was take great print work and make it move. Like that's what he was trying to do. And they did some of the best motion graphics. They won an Oscar. They did Superman, Ghostbusters, Alien, The Untouchables, Home Alone, some really classic, you know, Stranger Things that I'm sure many people watched on Netflix. So Stranger Things title sequence was inspired by RGA's early work. And then, yeah, fast forward 40 years. So it's RGA's 40th anniversary this year. And we've just brought that by design back. So, oh. we, so if you look at the website, it says connected by design. So that's our whole new positioning. So yes, I saw that, and I saw the movie. Yeah, the, the movie. Workplace. Gary Hustwit directed a movie for you hmm. about the design of your space. Yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? I think in many ways the space is. Oh, you have to come. You'll love it. I think the space is probably RGA's greatest design achievement because the whole thing has been designed like a brand. Well, it's it's amazing because in the film. Bob Greenberg and Nick Law talk about how they went about creating this digital landscape mm, mm. that would integrate with the physical space. Mm. So how do, how do they do that? Because you see this sort of yeah. before and after. You don't quite see some of the inner workings, and then mm. poof, there it is. <laughs> and it's amazing. And it's, what, 800 people in this building? Yeah, nearly 1,000 people across two floors. I think it's... Um, maybe 110,000 square feet each floor, the floor plate. What's interesting about it, so to put it in context, that's bigger than an NFL pitch field. Um, It's massive. And what makes it even bigger is the fact that there's no interior walls. So when you walk in, literally, you can see from one corner to the other. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. It sort of looks like an airport. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. Bob was inspired by that. He wanted the space to be very easy to navigate. You know, he said, you know, airport signage is amongst the best in the world. So that was definitely a reference point. Um, But his big thing was really, he felt that architecture generally, especially when it comes to interiors, had missed the connection to the digital world. He also had this interesting vision that if a client perhaps could come to the space, then that tour around the space would be almost a replacement for a credentials presentation. Like you would get a great sense of the culture and the people and the work. How it works is really interesting. So there's the RGA connected app. So you download the app. And then as you come into the space, it it knows where you are. So there are beacons that send out an inaudible audio signal that your smartphone picks up through its microphone. And that seamlessly links you and your location to screens that surround the space. So these are massive screens. It's not like an LCD screen. These are like billboard-sized screens that are projected on. And the, the screen tells you who sat in that area, what work they do, what awards they've won. And so you get this really beautiful, seamless, curated tour around the space 
And what's cool about it is it's kind of like a shrine to great design. So, you know, he's got some Dilaram stuff, Olivetti's, he's got super bikes, he's got cars in there. And Bob's got one of the biggest outsider art collections in the world. And so all that's on the wall and the app is connected. So you just photograph it and it tells you what it is. One of the things I like is that the lighting system, two interesting things about it. One is that it's been programmed on circadian rhythms so that everybody gets the same amount of light no matter where they're sat. And it's been programmed to basically aid concentration and health. Each one of the LEDs is individually programmable and controllable. So you can basically make pictures and patterns and colors out of the lighting in the ceiling. And so, for instance, let's say Verizon come in. You can turn the whole ceiling red. I was like, roll out the red carpet. Do you think you'll ever lose another pitch again? <laughs> yeah, it, maybe not if we can get them to come to the space. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yeah. So what exactly are you doing? What kind of projects are you working on, if you can talk about that? Yeah, I can. I think, um, so I lead jointly with Sunil Radia, who's my business partner. We lead the consulting part of what RGA does. So that's business and brand consulting. And so we are in a really interesting place where we're combining great business strategy with brand and technology together. Um, our model is we work in partnership with other teams at RGA. So we don't do anything on our own. We're always plugging into other um, groups. Um, and the way that RGA is structured is interesting because you know we have so many interesting divisions. So for instance, we've got a prototype studio where you can make anything pretty much in three or four days. Um, a content studio where you can do full film, video and things. Um, my first, tell me about my first project at RGA. It was awesome. Um, we had a, a client come in and say, hey, I want to rebrand boxing the sport. That was the first brief we got. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I want to launch my own franchise. I've got 150 of the best prize fighters on my roster. And I want to rebrand the sport. I want to cut the crap. I want to clean it up. I want to take it out of Vegas. I want to introduce the Olympic scoring system so that everyone knows who's winning after each round. And I, I want to get rid of the bling. I want to tell the fighter's story and take the focus back to the fight. And we were like, great. What a great project. And so, you know, our pitch was, well, we can t kind of clean the sport up for sure, but we should also take it forwards. So you think about a boxing ring, it's so small and self-contained. Why don't we get as much technology in there as possible and make it the most connected sport in the world and rebrand boxing through the viewer experience by producing a connected app. So the idea was let's make a connected boxing glove and then we connect that to a smartphone and it can kind of give you data. What we did was we made this thing in three or four days. So, you know, we went down to the prototype studio and said, hey, guys, can we make a connected boxing glove? And they were like, yeah. And the pitch was actually us, Chloe, punching Taris in the stomach in the meeting with the client. The client had the app in their hand. And it was just amazing to me, a demonstration of kind of, again, being creative with technology, kind of connecting that story and system together. You know, branding is great at telling stories, that kind of top-down, what we stand for, our role in the world. But then when you connect that to a system of some kind... I think that's really, really powerful, you know? And and the app would tell you, okay, so the, the heart rate of the fighter, it would tell you where they were in the ring. You could see if a punch landed or not, and it would tell you the pounds per square inch of that punch. And it was all beautiful. It looked great. I had black and white photography. Wow, it's like playing baseball and knowing exactly how fast the ball is going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it literally took you into the ring, you know? And so you won that pitch. We did. We did win, win the pitch, yeah. Um, we made the glove, so it hasn't launched yet, so hopefully it's going to launch at some point. And do you think the world is ready for a rebranded boxing experience? I think so. I think so. I just don't really don't like the it. idea of having to watch people hurt each other. <laughs> There's enough of that around. That's yeah, fair enough. Mike, I watched a design lecture you gave wherein you told the audience of designers that they should expect rejection. 
Yeah, when I look at your career at The Chase or Pentagram or Interbrand or RGA, I don't see much rejection. What is the biggest rejection you faced? Um, I think I've had some projects spectacularly fail. One of the hard parts when I think you're working and trying to push clients a lot is that a lot of stuff doesn't get made. So the stuff that you see on the outside world is a fraction of the stuff that we do. And most of it, at least half of it, never makes it. So you have to get used to that idea. And the closer you are to innovation, the more it happens. Innovation's hard. And I've worked on projects for a year, longer. They just died, you know, and you're like, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> dramatic echo kind of disappointment. But um, that's just, a, just part of the job, I suppose. The last question I want to ask you about is education. Mm. You've said that all of the best designers are self-learners. Mm. How do you continually keep self-learning? Yeah, I think it's just being naturally interested and curious in people and the world around you. I mean, you're the embodiment of this, you know. One thing that Ben, who's the founder of the Chase, used to say, which I thought was quite funny, was, um, you know, we'd be looking at design magazines and he'd be like, what are you looking at design magazines for? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, look at gardening magazines. What, like, you know, get out. And it, his point wasn't literally read gardening magazines. It was more like, if we're all looking in the same place, you know, um, we're all going to do the same things. Um, so I think that idea of just being curious and the best designers are self-learners. You know, you can just tell they're always doing something interesting. They've got a side project. And I think more to the point, every event you go to, every person you meet, you know, everything you do is fuel for your next idea. You know, so that, why, that is kind of essential really to your own progression. And when you start getting good, don't stop, keep going, you know, never stop learning. Hi, Grigby. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. It has been absolutely a joy to watch what you've been doing with your career. To learn more about Mike Rigby, go to mike-rigby.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. <laughs>